Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Good morning, y'all. Loving it. Loving this Sunday banter, community banter. My name is Jonathan Hodges, for those of you who don't know me. Every now and then, um, Ryan will call me in to QB a Sunday morning message, especially on his birthday, right? Man gets his day off. Yeah, it's special. It's special. I'm excited. I'm really excited for this message. It's been a journey preparing for it. I'm telling you that. It, it was, uh, yeah, anyways, I won't go off on that. Um, but to start the year, um, we've been turning back to the Old Testament. And I like, you know, the Old Testament to describe the Hebrew scriptures to me makes me cringe. So I'm just going to call it what it is, the Tanakh, okay? The Tanakh as a way to know the God revealed in Jesus on a deeper level. You know, all along the way, these Hebrew scriptures, in very rich, beautiful, and sometimes subtle ways, pronounce and anticipate the fulfillment of Yahweh's plans in Yeshua, or the God of Israel's plans in Jesus as king of his people. So as we learn to look for and listen for Jesus in the Hebrew scriptures, I believe that the Spirit of God can ignite in us a deeper affection for how Israel's story communicates the heart of God by pointing us to Christ. Jesus says you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify to me. So the Eureka series is really like the goal of this series is to elevate a higher Christological lens when we approach Israel's story in the Hebrew scriptures. So that's what we're trying to do. And last week, Ryan got us started in the beginning. The book of Genesis, chapter 1, loaded with such rich symbolism. This was as Israel's statement of intent in a surrounding pagan culture. There were rival gods and rival stories. And this was Israel's statement of intent or their origin story. And they were saying, our God is not like other gods. Our God exists above all creation, and all creation is good and is created out of joy. And God brought definition out of uh, definition, boundaries, structure through speaking and breathing. And humanity was created not as blind servants out of violence and chaos, like the pagan gods, but out of love and divine generosity. And not only was Jesus there in the beginning, it is him who holds all these things together. He is the animating force that holds all these things together. Like we sang in worship, he's the beginning and the end. And he was there in the beginning. And this was the story that Israel had. So this morning, we're going to continue, we're going to continue in the book of Genesis, chapter 2 and 3. And before we dive in, I just want to bring a little bit more historical context to the Genesis writings. And, and some of us know and some of us don't, but these writings were only compiled, completed, and arrive in the hands of Israelites, or to be specific, the tribe of Judah in 587 BC, while they were in Babylonian exile. 
for 70 years. And in those days, as depicted in the book of Jeremiah, or even the book of Daniel, or 1 Chronicles, or 2 Kings, the tribe of Judah became overrun by the Babylonian Empire, led by King Nebuchadnezzar II. And Judah was daily experiencing loss of identity, loss of land, as Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem and left Solomon's temple in a heap of rubble. So we need to picture the tragedy, like, in our minds. It's like, as the Israelites are receiving these writings, these Genesis writings, this is what's happening to them. No land, no temple, no king in exile. Jeremiah in those days pronounces judgment after judgment, prophecy after prophecy over Judah. Here's one from chapter 29 that we see in our Insta memes all the time. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to you, bring you back to this place. I have plans to prosper you and not to harm you and plans to give you hope and a future. You know, so it's so valuable to keep top of mind as we read the book of Genesis. You know, what Judah was experiencing, what kind of story they needed, what Judah was longing for, which was ultimately to be restored and redeemed back into the promised land under a messianic king. This is what they were hoping for. This is what they were anticipating. And Genesis speaks to that and serves as a timely word about Yahweh God, the God of Israel, and his plans, you know, granting Judah perspective for their reality and also helping them anticipate what was still coming. So here's where we're headed. The story of Eden lays the foundation for lordship in the first Adam, preparing for the coming of Christ as the second Adam. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so, um, we're so grateful that you revealed yourself to us in your son, that your heart for us is love, that you welcome us back into this conversation, into this relationship. We thank you that this is fully articulated in Israel's story. And I pray that this morning as we, as we um, journey through these words in Genesis 2 and 3 that we would hear your heart. That we would hear your heart for Adam. That we'd, we'd hear your heart for Adam and Eve. And um, that it would just make the invitation so much more real for, for us. That you are communicating something to us through these words. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So Genesis 2, starting in verse 4 through 25, 
We'll be reading out of the First Testament translation, and just disclaimer, uh, this is fresh off the press, this translation, so it hasn't been vetted um, by the Christian Illuminati. Um, so um, it won't be on any of your Bible apps, uh, actually. Um, but you could still pull out your Bible app to Genesis 2 because you could still follow along. Um, but what I'd like to preface, what the translators set out to uh, achieve with this translation is to really remain within the Hebrew and Aramaic word for word. Um, so, for example, throughout the entire First Testament, there's 70 names um, for the God of Israel, and they literally address every single name because it makes a difference for um, the people of Israel when they read these scriptures. So it's just important, you know. I think it's there's so much depth to the Hebrew scriptures that when we read them, it's just like, oh yeah, like so 70 names to the God. But anyways, so let's follow along together. It'll be up on the screen, chapter two, verse four. To put it another way, to put Genesis one another way. These are the lines of descent of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens. And no bush of the wild was on the earth yet, and no plant of the wild had grown yet. Because Yahweh God had not made it rain on the earth, and there was no human being to serve the ground. Though a stream would go up from the earth and water the entire face of the ground. Yahweh God shaped a human person with earth from the ground and blew into its nostrils living breath, and the human person became a living being. Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden in the east and put there the human being he had shaped. Yahweh God made to grow up from the ground every tree that's desirable to look at and good for food with the life tree in the middle of the garden and the good and bad knowledge tree. There was a river going out of Eden to water the garden and from there dividing and becoming four headwaters. The name of the first was Pishon. It was the one going around the entire Havilah region where the gold is. The gold of that region is good. Pearl and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river was Gihon. It was the one going round the entire Kush, Sudan region. The name of the third river was Tigris. It was the one going east of Ashashur. The fourth river was the Euphrates. Yahweh God took the human being and set him down in Eden Garden to serve it and keep it. Yahweh God ordered the human being, from every tree in the garden you may definitely eat, but from the good and bad knowledge tree... You will not eat, because on the day you eat from it, you will definitely die. Yahweh God said, it's not good for the human being to be on his own. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. So Yahweh God shaped from the ground every creature of the wild and every bird in the heavens and brought them to the human being to see what he'd call it. Whatever the human being called the living being, that became its name. The human being gave names to all the animals, to the birds in the heavens, and to all the creatures of the wild. But for a human being, Adam, he didn't find a helper suitable for him. So Yahweh God made a coma fall on the human being, so he slept, took one of his ribs, and closed up its place with flesh. Yahweh God built the rib that he'd taken from the human being into a woman, and brought her to the human being. 
The human being said, this now is bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. This one will be called woman because from a man this one was taken. That's why a man abandons his father and mother and attaches himself to his woman and they become one flesh. The two of them were naked, the man and his woman, but they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. So it is less likely the point to locate Eden geographically out of this passage. I think we can all agree on that. But more to speak into the longings of our first audience. Remember Judah in exile? Here the author is telling Judah about a land, a kingdom, where Yahweh God once dwelt among man in a garden, created in the beginning for labor, food, water, life, and harmony. And furthermore, onyx and stone are mysterious elements that could only and should only heighten the sense of awe and wonder of our listeners. And I believe the author is saying here, this place, this land, this garden is something in the world, but also out of this world. The Garden of Eden is a place where we have full intimacy with Yahweh in his kingdom. The Garden of Eden is a place where we have full intimacy with Yahweh in his kingdom. This is how Judah was reading this. And it is coming. And it is coming. So growing up in Quebec, I grew up in Quebec. I'm your token Canadian hoser, French Canadian hoser. So growing up in Quebec, every September, right before the fall, no pun intended, everyone flocks to our apple orchards. And we have a luxury of delightful, um, you know, apple orchards scattered all across the province, and you can gaze at endless fields of apple trees bursting with fruit, and like, you know, you can hardly restrain yourself from taking, you know, you know just you know, getting, getting fat off apples, man. Like, you're just picking apples off the tree, wiping it on your shirt, and just digesting them right on the spot, right? So, but despite this experience being so incredible, we're we're all just reaping the fruit from someone else's labor, right? Because every apple tree, every apple orchard has its beginnings. And without someone bringing that apple orchard to life, none of the experience would be possible. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 9, in the, wisest, in, the, in the words of the wisest king of Israel, Solomon, he says, this is gain for land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. And historically, the proper role of a king was to oversee the good order of his, of his land. You know, quite literally from the ground up, he was responsible to maintain the fruitfulness of the land in every respect, agriculturally, economically, industrially, artistically, socially, and yes, religiously. Here in Genesis 2, the human being is placed in the first garden of the land of Eden, to be fully committed to serve the ground, as the passage states, to cultivate and bring life to this garden place to its fullness and multiply the goodness and generosity of Yahweh God in the land. 
This was his vocation. This was Adam's mandate. This was his goal. Like this was his role. This land needed a gardener to settle and steward its fruits. There was plenty of wild growth, but the land needed kingly oversight to ensure the growth of this flourishing kingdom. But of course, not all farmers are kings, right? But the royal nature of Adam's calling here is enforced by the residence which God prepares for him in this garden. Yahweh God puts Adam in this garden from which to oversee the fields of Eden. In Genesis 2, it is the vocation of Adam as king that is essential to his comparison with Jesus. Listen to this quote by G.K. Beale. God places Adam into a royal temple to begin to reign as his king, just as Israel's expectation is of a messianic king. You know, it's vital for us when we read this story to recognize temple imagery. Remember, no temple. Judah is, is thinking, like, what's going on here? No temple? No land? No king? It's like no hope, right? And this story here is, is infusing anticipation of hope for their story. So in those days, kings lived in garden palaces adjacent to temples. And by this arrangement, the heavenly king, Yahweh, and his earthly king, Adam, dwelt together in this garden. This should rightly provoke us to think of a, of a king seated at the right hand of God. It is the vocation of Adam as king that is essential to his comparison with Jesus. Here in Genesis 2, don't shoot me, Adam has been given equal position, honor, power, and authority on earth. We see this when Adam names every creature of the wild and bird in the heavens, and furthermore, the naming of his other half, the woman. Yahweh gives away earthly authority to Adam and Eve, and this prefigures Christ and the church. This is a type of Christ and the church. And Yahweh gives earthly authority away to Adam and Eve to hold sway over creation, to bring it to maturity together, to make decisions out of responsibility and stewardship of his garden, operating out of unity with God. And Yahweh, God blesses them with this first commission, just hearkening back to Genesis 1, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This echoing the great commission in Christ, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me, therefore go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. These first humans who bore the image and likeness of Yahweh, the God of Israel, were gardeners, masters, and servants of creation designed to care for, enlarge, and bring Yahweh's kingdom into holistic maturity as his earthly representatives, his sons and his daughters. Humanity as the mediator between God and creation reflects God's rule 
and reign so creation can flourish. And this is very, very good. Listen to this quote by John Mark Comer from the book, his book, Garden City. We're called to a very specific kind of work. To make a garden-like world where image bearers can flourish and thrive. It should be up on the screen. Where people can experience and enjoy God's generous love. A kingdom where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Where the glass wall between earth and heaven is so thin and clear and translucent that you don't even remember it's there. That's the kind of world we're called to make. After all, we're just supposed to continue what God started in the beginning. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, to cap off Genesis 2, like this is what's happening in Genesis 2. Humans and God dwelling in a garden in harmony with the vocation to bring God's kingdom to the world. And then tragedy strikes. And we all, we all know how this story goes, and we bring a lot of lenses to the story. So I'm probably, I'm trying not to bring all of those lenses to this story this morning. Um, but we're going to continue in Genesis 3, verse 1 through 10. Now the snake was the shrewdest of all the creatures of the wild that Yahweh God had made. It said to the woman, did God really say you will not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, we may eat of the fruit from the trees in the garden, but from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, God said, you will not eat of it or touch it or you will die. Round one to Eve. Slow down, complimentarian. She answers correctly. She even adds no touching to the initial prohibition, which is interesting. But good for her, you know, good for her. But the snake comes back for round two. Pretty quickly, actually. The snake said to the woman, you won't die at all. Rather, God knows that on the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll become like God's, knowing good and bad. The woman saw that the tree was good to eat and that it was an object of longing to the eyes and the tree was desirable for giving insight. So she, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her man with her and he ate. The eyes of the two of them opened and they knew that they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of Yahweh God walking about in the garden in the breezy time of the day. So the man and his woman hid from the face of Yahweh God among the trees in the garden. Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. Have you eaten from the tree that I ordered you not to eat from? pretty sad. I don't know if our hearts grieve when we read that story, but my heart grieves every time I read that story. So up to this moment, this story has emphasized the plentiful nature of God's provision and one prohibition. And the snake in its shrewdness is suggesting that Yahweh's provision is all prohibition. You know how, like, 
I was thinking about this. How many times, you know, do we forget about the big picture? Like how generous God has been, especially in giving us his son. That's the main thing. But everything that he's given us, a world to live in, breath in our lungs. And then like one thing comes along and provokes us to forget about the rest of it, right? I mean, that's sometimes how, how I feel in my relationship with God. And here the snake in its shrewdness makes it sound like all prohibition, saying, wouldn't you like to set that aside and become godlike? Back in Genesis 2, Yahweh determined he was to be Lord of this one tree. Warning Adam, you will die a spiritual death. I'm reminded of, of, uh, of sort of the beginning of Genesis 2 where he creates the human and then breathes life into the human and then the human becomes a living being. And I'm provoked to think that, you know, when they took of the, of the tree that they died a spiritual death. They lost that breath that God was, was giving them. You know, every day we, fought, we face the invitation of these, tre- these two trees. You know, you will find light. Will you find life in Yahweh God, in the resurrected Jesus, the life-giving spirit? Or will you take upon yourself what you determine to be good, bad, or knowledgeable for you? These are the two invitations that we face every day. And we were created to find life through intimacy with God, not to take ownership of knowledge upon ourselves. This is what's happening in this scene. Let's just have a little bit of fun. What was Adam doing while Eve was having her seminar with the snake? Was he napping? Was he just standing there passively not engaging? If Eve is guilty by her action, Adam is guilty by his silence in action and participation. Furthermore, Adam is the one who first blames God and Eve. And Eve blames the snake. Round two to Eve. (laughs) Everything is turning upside down. Roles are being reversed. Creation is subduing humanity. Remember, humans were supposed to subdue creation. In this story, this snake is subduing the humans, right? So everything is being reversed. Even worse, the first humans are hiding themselves. And all this right before Yahweh God simply wants to take a nice relaxing walk with them to decompress. It's the saddest scene. It it seriously is really sad. You know, and perhaps Yahweh God knows knows they're hiding but wants to give them a chance to come out of hiding. By saying, by asking, where are you? Where are you? I don't know how many times I've heard that question in my own life. Or perhaps God wills not to know and will let them stay hidden if they so choose. Fair question. So here's the moment when fear also enters into the relationship between humanity and God. And though fear in the sense of reverence and honor is an appropriate posture in our relationship with God, we were never supposed to be afraid of taking a walk with the one who wants to take a walk with us. 
never. So it's important to let our hearts grieve this scene here. Because it is quite clear that God's heart is grieving in this interaction. He's excited to take a walk with Adam and Eve. He's excited to take a walk with us to cool off. The word is breezy, right? And unfortunately, you know, we are too busy hiding in fear from the mere sound of him, and sadly, we hide from his face. So Adam and Eve, in taking from the tree of knowledge, did not fall from a state of bliss. They failed to realize a possibility, a possibility of oneness with God. But instead, they chose independence from Yahweh God, failing in their vocation and in their identity as his earthly representatives. It's tragic. But where humanity failed in our role as mediator between God and old creation, Jesus fulfills the call to intimacy with God as the firstborn of new creation. That should be up on the screen. So where humanity failed in our role as mediator between God and old creation, Jesus fulfills the call to intimacy with God as the firstborn of new creation. So we're not going to read the rest of Genesis 3, and you're like, oh, man, why would you do that? You know, but I, I figured I'd take this one. You know, like this, first Yahweh speaks to the snake, yay, Eve. Yahweh speaks to the snake first. I mean, this should be, this should be relevant. Like, we, we all come here carrying a lot of weight. We all care, come here carrying a lot of challenges in our lives, the decisions that we're discerning through, um, maybe failures, perceived failures that we're walking through in our lives, challenges, whatever. And we always, you know, seek to have someone to blame you know, and we often blame God first. We often blame him first. And I think this is important, that we need to rediscover who we're speaking to when we're, we're, we're seeking for deliverance. Who we attribute, like, all of this, like, death, deathly living kind of stuff that, you know, pulls us down. Who are we addressing? Who are we addressing? So, Anyways, first Yahweh speaks to the snake and sends him out into the wilderness and says, see you later. I'm not done with you. It's no wonder that, you know, snakes in the Middle East especially, they end up in deserts. This is what they were known for. They were also a symbol for a lot of the pagan religions of the day. So you can imagine like how Israel's reading into this. Oh yeah, right. This is how we slip. This is how we slip. We forget about you. But anyways, so Yahweh sends him out into the wilderness and says, see you later. And then Jesus fulfills Adam's failure when he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness, responding, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is Jesus. That response should not make us cringe. That response should make us rejoice. And then Yahweh proceeds to make Adam and Eve new clothes because their clothes weren't good enough, right? 
They made themselves clothes, and then Yahweh's like, listen, like, I'll, I'll make you clothes because you're going on an adventure, right? So before casting them out into the world, east of Eden, they, they must have been far east because Eden, Eden was in the east, but they must have been further east. Yahweh in a dose of realism, and this is what I love about the Lord when we enter into relationship with him. You know, in a dose of realism explains to Adam and Eve that from this point, life outside the garden will be very challenging. You will endure deep emotional and physical pains. Now, he's using pregnancy as a metaphor, but if you think about Eve's offspring, I mean, quite literally, her sons kill each other. This is painful. This is a painful reality. Your sons and daughters will quite literally kill each other. Death has come upon your house. Tragedy slavery, separation, exile. Your people will wander in the wilderness aimlessly and struggle to have power over each other and other nations. So in this moment, to love and to cherish has become to desire and dominate. This is the world we live in. This is a dose of realism. We shouldn't be surprised. Yahweh God is explaining their reality to them, to Judah and to us. So Yahweh essentially says, out there in the world, you will have trouble. But then Jesus whispers from the halls of eternity, take heart. I have overcome the world. I have crushed the head of the serpent. Through Jesus as the second Adam, we are all welcomed back into intimacy with God as the source of life, as mediators between God and creation. We're invited back into the garden. We're in need of redemption, not because we're rotten to the core, but because we chose to wander away. This grieves the heart of God, but in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, he welcomes us back into intimacy. Isn't it good news that we're welcomed back into the garden? Like, we're welcomed back into the garden, in all in allegiance to King Jesus, that he is building a spiritual reality, a family here that embodies heaven on earth. Like, come on. Isn't that amazing? It's beautiful. I want us to stand together. Let's stand. So I'm now 36 years old. I was, I was debating with my brother, am I 36 or 37? Because I didn't want to be 37. So I just wanted him to be 37. So I'm 36. Anyways. So let's just say I carried a lot of weight through my 20s. A lot of weight. A weight of death. I lost two of my best friends, one to drinking and driving and one to suicide in the span of three years. The weight of a knee injury. You know, for years, I was just snowboarding my days away, and I loved it. And then one, and one day, got in an accident, full replacement knee surgery, done. That'll, that'll do it to you. The weight of drug addiction that came out of that. The weight of lies. The weight of lust. The weight of broken relationships. The weight of betrayal, pride, shame, ego, 
The list goes on and on. Depression, no life direction, dishonesty, fear, vanity, corruption, wealth, power. The weight of these things is heavy. You know, and then around the age of 25, you know, I, find my, I found myself overseeing and managing an after-hours venue up in Montreal called the Torn Curtain, okay? I'm not even kidding. Like, this is... And I'd, I'd wandered so far off into exile, so far east of Eden, so to speak, that what happens next is completely outrageous. At f- around 5 a.m. in the morning, no word of a lie, I stood back in this venue called the Torn Curtain to observe the room and people, just doing my job. And all of a sudden, it was as if the Spirit of God came over me and asked me to listen. Like, just to pay attention. Pay attention. So I closed my eyes. Like, I was so far. I was so far. There was nothing that was, this was in a moment, like, of just, whoa, okay? So I closed my eyes. I opened my palms. And all I could hear over and over again was, Jonathan, it is finished. Follow me. Jonathan, it is finished. Follow me. I was like, what is this? You know, what is this? And it was in that moment that I heard Jesus' word for the, almost for the first time in my life. It is finished. It was in that moment when I closed my eyes and remembered the crucified Jesus. I understood the love of God. It was also in that moment where Jesus' death reverberated in my heart and even more beautifully through the halls of eternity. It is finished. In that moment, in that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open, and the dead were raised. Not only was my heart open to the reality of God, again, but the earth was being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. Removing that cherubim and that sword flashing back and forth that guarded our access to the garden and the tree of life. This is what's happening in that moment. This is the reality that we're standing in here this morning. It was always God's desire to take a walk with us, but we chose out. But now in his son, we have the opportunity to choose in no matter what weight we are carrying. So maybe you're carrying some of that weight I carried. Maybe you're in exile not knowing where life is leading you. Maybe you're hungry for hope and are desperate for a fresh filling. Maybe you're in need of more strength to sustain you at work. Maybe you need strength to help you get through the pressure of parenting. Maybe you need discernment and wisdom for a big decision moving forward. And maybe you need a king. 
know, if that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come down here by the steps, just by the steps of the stage. As we enter into worship, really last week, we were in the middle of worship and this young man just came down and he got on his knees and he put his hands up during worship. And it was beautiful. I think it was the first time that someone actually did that. And as I was praying, I just had this, got this picture. You know, although we carry all this weight in our journey, today we all need a fresh filling. We all need to come to this realization in the moment that God is inviting us back into the garden. So let's open up our palms. If that's you this morning and you are... and. The lights are going to come down a little bit and we're going to move into a time of worship. But if that's you this morning and God is nudging you just to come down here in, a, in just a, a step of faith, this is not an altar call. This is not an altar call. This is a moment, a step in your journey back into the garden the God who loves, whose love knows no bounds. So if you're carrying the weight of loss, of drug addiction, lies, lust, broken relationships, pride, shame, ego, depression, feeling like maybe you don't have any life direction, Jesus laid down his life to restore and redeem us back into that place where we can go for a walk with God. So this is this moment. And if that's you this morning, feel free right now just to come down as we move into a time of worship. If that's you, if you need a fresh filling, we are going to pray and we are going to worship. We are going to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King. And that he says, it is finished. It is finished. And that this morning when we remember those words and we praise him for those words, that we are giving these, this weight over to him. This is intimacy. This is intimacy with God. This is intimacy with God. You know, and our church this year is being fueled by this prophetic word. From the throne flows a river of renewal. Not to be taken lightly. From the throne flows a river of renewal. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. 
I believe this. I believe that in a, in a, in a tiny church of 120, that God could use that, that church for the healing of the nations. That from the throne flows a river of renewal. And that the weight we carry to the throne is just overrun by the rivers of living water. And the only response that comes from the church is the spirit and the bride say, come, come and taste from this river. So for those who are standing up there and there's people here, you know, if you're a leader here or a ministry facilitator, you know, Feel free that during worship, come down and lay your hands on your brother or your sister and pray for them. Father, we are so grateful. We are so grateful that you revealed yourself to us and your son. That your desire is to take a walk with us in the garden once again. That when we sing that you are the beginning and the end, and that when we praise your name for those words, it is finished, that we believe that those, that it's, it's true. It's true. We're so grateful for your faithfulness to us for your steadfast love endures forever. That nothing in this world can satisfy. That Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord. You are Lord. So I pray for each and every brother and sisters that are up here by the stage and even those that are seated up there. God, all of us here are seated in heavenly places. In you. In Christ, we are seated in heavenly places. And some of us are tired of the weight. And we need your yoke, Lord Jesus, that is light, that is freedom, real freedom. that all that weight that we bring that is not of you, that it is the snakes, that it is him. He has no power over these things. That God, you are Lord. You say it is finished. Strengthen us for this journey, God. May the fruits of your spirit reign in each and every one of us who have come up to the stage and those beyond. Lord, the fruits of, the, of your spirit, would they reign and rule in our lives, in our lives. We thank you for this moment, God. We thank you for this moment. In Jesus, in Jesus' name. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. 
We hope you join us again soon.